today we're going to talk a little bit about the triumphs of Oriana, a collection of madrigals, a little bit about composer Michael East, who no one's ever heard of, uh, and if you haven't heard of the triumphs of Oriana, then what have you been living under a stupid rock? This is Early Music Monday. So I remember I was an undergraduate at BYU-Idaho, and the King Singers came to BYU-Idaho and did a concert, and I was psyched. I knew the King Singers were, they were one of the few groups that I knew, um, they were like celebrities, well they are, they are celebrities, they're freaking coral rock stars, anyway, so I, uh, they came, they did a concert, and I was so, I, I just loved every piece, and I was like, man, I want a CD of this concert, they must have it, obviously, so I went out to the booth, to the, like, where they're selling CDs after the concert, and they didn't have the CD of that concert, because their performance is kind of a, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but it's just kind of like, yeah, this is a bunch of the stuff that we sing, and we combine it for our concerts, but their CDs were a little bit different rep. So I was like, okay, well, I'll buy these two. The Triumphs of Oriana looks cool, and Greatest Hits, awesome. So I went home, and I just started, and I didn't really even know. I was just a fresh young youngling learning his way like a newborn giraffe stumbling through the land of coralness and I had no idea I barely knew the distinction between time periods and I was like okay this first one Triumphs of Oriana I don't really get it but these pieces are cool and then the greatest hits I was like oh and these are cool and so I became well I didn't really st- I still didn't really get the triumphs of Oriana I was like what what who is this Oriana person but I was too lazy to look it up I didn't like do any research then I just kind of like kept it on my back of my iPod classic uh, playlist of King Singer stuff and they would come on and I, I really liked them but again I didn't really get it it's like huh so as I matured and kind of grew up and came to understand the time periods and really delved into this choirness, choir scene. I I realized kind of what they were. I was like, oh, so these are madrigals and you know, the difference between sacred and secular music and the sacred and secular styles and how Secular music was, especially madrigals, even in England, was kind of an Italian form, but but kind of adopted and given a little bit of an English twist. You got to put a little English on it. For those of you who are uh, followers or players of the the basketball, just means to put a little spin on the ball so it spins off the backboard into the hoop. So you, you know, put put a little English on it means put a little twist, little spin. Um, little sports trivia 
words for you there. So, and I was super, I don't know, as, as I went forward, I kind of, and my, my focus turned much more towards Renaissance sacred music styles, but I sort of always kept the triumphs of Oriana kind of in my back pocket because it was one of my introductions to Renaissance music as, as like a collection, as like a, whoa, this is a whole CD of Renaissance music. And it was my first introduction to that. And it was super fascinating to me. So, The Triumphs of Oriana. First of all, I found out who Oriana was. It was Elizabeth I. And so I was like, why are they singing? Anyway, Triumphs Oriana is Elizabeth I. So, a little bit of background about the collection of madrigals themselves. The Triumphs of Oriana is a collection of pieces by it was this whole project was initiated by drumroll Thomas Morley Thomas Morley now we've done a podcast on Thomas Morley before and we've talked a little bit about some of the events of his life but uh, in further research in this this article that I found um uh by author David Brown it was just super fascinating to hear some of these other accounts of who Thomas Morley was. And so there's this really interesting exchange between Thomas Morley and Charles... I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this name, which is embarrassing. Uh, Paget, maybe? Anyway, so Paget was... A Catholic dissident who left England during the reign of Elizabeth I and the, the Catholic persecution. And so he was living in kind of the Low Countries, uh, France region. And uh, Thomas Morley, who had fled momentarily and then came back, but he kind of was, he was not posing, but he was fleeing as a Catholic as well. And uh, this is what he says in, in, uh, quote, he seemed here to be a good Catholic and was reconciled, but notwithstanding suspecting his behavior, I intercepted letters that Mr. Noel, the Dean of St. Paul's, wrote to him whereby I discovered enough to have hanged him. Nevertheless, he showing with tears great repentance and asking on his knees for forgiveness, I was content to let him go. I hear since his coming thither, he hath played promoter and apprehendeth Catholics. Interesting twist there, Tom. Tom Morley. Or should we call you Tom Riddle? Hmm. Anyway, so he kind of, so that kind of paints a different picture of Thomas Morley's kind of this uh, sneaky self-preservation businessman. And he was an entrepreneur and knew how to take, like, he took all in all the facts and all the context of the world around him and was able to kind of see which way he should go to kind of better his situation. And... So he got this idea to make a collection of madrigals kind of paying homage to the queen. 
again. There might be there might be some some debate on the sincerity of the tribute. Maybe it was a maybe he was actually paying tribute or maybe he was in the mode of self-preservation and simultaneously flipping the bird BYRD get it that was funny <laughs> anyway to the queen anyway so he goes out and he seeks an input from composers from all over the country and this really demonstrates kind of a big time shift in styles in contemporary in, in their contemporary secular writing because they took a lot from the continent. Previously, the continent, European continent and England kind of doing their own thing, not really cross-pollinating very much in terms of style, but maybe a little bit. And but nothing overly significant. And then Morley had this realization of, hey, you know what? Maybe we can have the words paint the picture of what the text is saying more accurately. Whoa. Boom. Which was a very, again, Italian madrigal thing. And they took it to intense extremes, obviously, with people like Monteverdi and Gesualdo and all of those Mantuan composers. But in England, it, it was still very reserved and, and kind of proper and conservative. And then until Morley, and it really kind of picked up the pace and in its expression. So it's really amazing. And, and even though by the time of its publication, that, that's kind of Morley in general, it, Morley's madrigals really set the tone and, and changed the style of madrigal writing across the, the British continent. So, and then by the time we get to the Triumphs of Oriana, we kind of see the peak of that because by the time the Triumphs of Oriana was published, vocal secular music that was, I mean, and it was supposed to be performed at home. It was, I mean, these pieces are not really that easy, but in Thomas Morley's words, it's like, yeah, these are, these are easy enough to just kind of do at home. No big deal. And so, you know, three voices, four voices, five voices is kind of the, from three to five voices was really the 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 majority of pieces, uh, voicings. But, again, by the time we get to the Triumphs of Oriana, we kind of see the peak of this stylistic shift of we are in full-fledged Madrigalian style where we have text painting, we have expression, we have scandal, sort of, sometimes, and we have rhythmic diversity, and we have... Text painting, I already said that one. Anyway, so, and and then, oddly enough, as we get to the publication of The Triumphs of Oriana, the, the queen dies just a year or two later, and style really starts to shift towards this instrumental, 
early Baroque music and, you know, unaccompanied vocal music is starting to wane in its popularity. So it's kind of the last hurrah of the British madrigal style because it, 16, you know, 05 to getting into the 1620s and that kind of following decade, really the style shifts even more into what we would call early Baroque. And uh, madrigals kind of went the way of the wind until they were kind of resurrected coming back into kind of the modern era. So that's a little bit about the triumphs of Oriana, about its history and about Thomas Morley. Now, again, composers from all over the country were commissioned to contribute, and it was kind of this amazing feat to have all these composers master this style so quickly. Now, of the 23 madrigals in the collection... One of my top five faves, top five faves, who's in your top five? Is that what that used to be called? Where you have like five numbers on speed dial, speed dial for your five bestest, bestest friends? Anyway, is, is the first one in the collection in terms of um, uh, collected order is Hence Stars, Too Dim of Light by Michael East. I don't know what it is about it per se because it has a lot of similar characteristics. I just, I think I love the drone tones at the end where it has the basses singing these long notes and then the upper voices singing these cascading imitative phrases on long live Oriana. It's very cool. And it really... How it's just yeah I I love it I think it's really well crafted and is got a lot of complex not complexity it's really straightforward and simple but it has a lot of rhythmic variation and textural shifts and it's really cool. So the interesting thing about Michael East is it's kind of like well it is musical nepotism at its finest, because he was, uh, to quote this article again that I read, um, (laughs) uh, Michael East was um, a prolific but unremarkable composer. (laughs) I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, but, and he wrote mostly instrumental music, but his uncle, Thomas East, was the music publisher and printer who printed the collection. So he's like, yeah, I'll do this if you if you let my nephew kind of sneak one in there. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. It's the most like Michael Scott thing where he has his his nephew come and work for him. Luke, I believe his name was. And uh, anyway, so I just think that's hilarious. I don't know why I think that's hilarious. I just think it's hilarious um, because it's you have all these like insane like you have uh thomas tompkins thomas wilkes thomas morley john farmer and michael east (laughs) honorable mention 
anyway, I think that's so, but again, it, it is one of my favorite pieces in the collection. So he clearly knew what he was doing. And it just goes to show that times really haven't changed, that it's still kind of who you know. Well, I would say at first it's who you know that gets you in the door, but if you want to stay in the door, then it's definitely what you know for the most part. I think who you know gets you the opportunity and what you know keeps you there. So that's just my my two cents. Uh, that's how I view it. People might disagree with me. Anyway, so with so that's the triumphs of Oriana. There's a lot more things in it. There, there's some reference to that. It every single one of them ends with the phrase, "Then sang the shepherds and nymphs of Diana, long live fair Oriana," and they're all they all have this kind of reference to Greek mythology, um, Greek mythological creatures, and is very much more of a secular um, and what's the word? Not blasphemous, but kind of it has this kind of irreverent nature to it. All of them do. So it's this big shift from some of the sacred music we've been talking about and some of the sacred music that was going on at the time still in a lot of the cathedrals going around. So it, it plays this really cool paints, this really cool picture of the music scene going on in London, in England at the time of, you know, the music of the church was this and the music of the secular world was this. And these composers played in both arenas and it kind of gives you a more complete picture of who they were as people is that they were not really that different from composers of today who write secular and sacred stuff. So I love the triumphs of Oriana. I think they're, they're really engaging. And when the audience understands a little bit of the background, they're really colorful and draw the audience into this kind of, whoa, this is exciting style and kind of help. I think it's very relatable to a lot of the music of today um, in, in certain ways. I mean, it was obviously this is paying homage to the queen, to royalty, to the government. And I don't really know how much music we have today. That's like praising the government. Like we don't view the government the same way uh, nowadays. I mean, if you're living in the UK, some people, I mean, I know there's strong feelings on both sides of about the, the royal family, but in, in America, the government's kind of like not really a part of our lives. Well, it shouldn't be, I guess. And uh, so we don't really have this, let's sing to the, to the, to the president of the United States. Um, so it's a little bit different in that respect, but it, it, you know, it's like this would have been on Renaissance radio, whereas the sacred music was happening in just the, in the church itself. So that's a little bit about the triumphs of Oriana. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because this upcoming Wednesday, two days from now, 
Sound of Ages is performing with Provo High School. You remember a while back we had an episode called The Sound of Ages Approach where we talked about our educational outreach program and what we were singing with Provo High School as the first ever Sound of Ages Approach. So we have a concert. We are sharing a concert with them on Wednesday in which we will be singing Michael East's Hence Stars. We'll also be singing the Peter Phillips song mentioned in that episode with the high school students. We're super psyched about it. So in preparation for that, Sound of Ages just released a video of um, of us performing Hence Stars, Too Dim of Light by Michael East. It's all over the Facebooks and the Instagrams, so you can check it out. We'll put it on YouTube. But as a preview to our concert, we're going to play the recording of that piece here on this episode. So in coming up in just a few minutes. So this project is features eight singers from Sound of Ages. So it's uh, smaller of our ensemble. It's about half of what we typically perform with. And the coolest part is that we performed this in a parking garage because there's a lot of um, COVID restrictions going on and the parking garage was, uh, it, we got it at a really good price, free, 90 free, and we were able to record in there um, uh, without uh, having to sing with masks and stuff. And we kept our distance and sang safely, of course, but... Anyway, it was uh, it was a fun little project. The video features a really nice BMW in the background because that was the best spot to sing, and uh, someone had left their BMW there overnight. So we recorded on a Sunday evening of this business building's parking garage. It's fantastic. It was really fun. So here is Sound of Ages performing "Hence Stars Too Dim of Light" by Michael East.
Okay, thanks for joining us today on the podcast, the shorter episode. But I hope you are intrigued, at least, to go check out the Triumphs of Oriana. There are several choirs. I know the Ifagiolini has an album of all of them, all 23 motets, or madrigals. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. And uh, again, like I said, the King Singers have an album of the Triumphs of Oriana. Go check them out. Listen to them. They're super cool. Um, They're really exciting and engaging. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating or write us a review. It really helps us a lot in the algorithms. And we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.